Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow White. Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. I am the Fly Fishing Consultant. Legally, my name is Rob Snow White. On the other end of this podcast, we have producer Jason. He'll tell you all his information at the end of the podcast. This is Series 1, Episode 54, Small Streams, Small Mountain Streams specifically. And what do we find in those small mountain streams? We find brook trout. So this is a podcast about fly fishing for brook trout. I didn't write the book on fly fishing for small streams. I'm just doing the podcast on it. If you want the book, go talk to Tom Rosenbauer. We're going to give out... The shout out to this week's podcast to John M., one of my clients. Several months ago when I wrote this podcast, we had just fished Holmes Run down the street. It's about three miles from here, which puts it six miles from the White House. It's an urban fishery. Lake Barcroft is on one side. It's a private lake, six miles of shoreline. And then you have a dam and a tailwater. The water goes over the top of the dam, so you can only have trout from eh, October through April. We were fishing there probably May time after the shad had kind of trickled out. He wanted to learn how to fish small streams so he could go fly fish up in the mountains for brook trout. It's a great little stream. It meanders through a stream valley, total urban, but it's got all the nooks and crannies and crevices and drop-offs and riffles and runs and plunge pools and and curves in the water and cut banks and etc. See, you practice on a stream like that, makes a great learning experience for when you actually have to get up to the mountains. And that's what I did growing up. I practiced on my local warm water creek behind my house. It was the Glade, and we had Snake Den. And by the time my dad took me fly fishing up in the mountains in the Shenandoah National Park for brook trout, I kind of figured out what I was doing. It's a long time ago. That's 1987 for you guys. Long time ago. Now, I think you should definitely pause now and go back and listen to the small stream. This is the small stream podcast. My goodness. 
Let's go back in time and listen to the Reading Water podcast where I talk about the anatomy of a small stream. Specifically, let's talk about and listen to the plunge pool section. Plunge pool is what you're going to find in a drop elevation. It's going to be deep, cold, oxygenated water in a small stream. That's where you can find most of these brook trout that we're discussing. But you also talk about how water as an aqueous medium passes through over and around substrate and objects like boulders and log jams, goes over waterfalls and all those other characteristics that make up a brook trout stream. So you know exactly where to find the brook trout so you're not wasting your time. Don't really have a sponsor for this one. We'll just give a big thanks to Cables. You heard them in the last podcast. They are producers of my new favorite sunglass retainer. I've got them on my Rio Mar Costas right now. And since my in-laws found the pair of Costas my wife lost at their house up in Breckenridge, and they just mailed it to me, she thought they were stolen, but it turns out they had fallen behind the guest bed. So I've got those and my yellow Sunrise Costas. So I need two new pairs of cables. I love them, cables.com. So let's talk about small streams. What is a small stream? Well, a small stream is just that. It's small. In most places, you could jump across it, but not always. Small streams are feeder streams to larger bodies of water. Think about a dirt road out in the sticks that eventually meets up with a gravel road, which is a little bit wider, that eventually meets a one-lane paved road to a two-lane two paved road. And then you get to like a three-lane avenue and a four-lane parkway and a five-lane highway to some jumbo road like Interstate 95 here in the Washington, D.C. area or the Beltway. So they're small. Eventually, they're going to get bigger as you find out in the next couple of minutes. The water is going to come from four locations. And there's probably more, but I'm going to say four. Percolating springs, cold groundwater. Comes up just like we talked about in the podcast about spring creeks. Snow melt depending on the elevation and the time of year, or just rainfall. Now, you can also have a tailwater. The classic tailwater in the D.C. metro area is going to be Big Hunting Creek. Big Hunting Creek is in the Catoctin Mountains, Catoctin State Forest, near Thurmont, Maryland. Camp David's up there. You have a bunch of very small wild brook trout streams in the Catoctin Mountains that feed into a lake. And then you have the other end of the lake, you have a dam. At the bottom of the dam, you've got a opening the water comes out cold as the bottom of the lake and feeds into a stream it's big hunting creek you can jump across big hunting creek up there but as it drops in elevation and winds and meanders through the valley that it's carved out over the last millions of years it eventually takes on more water from side streams and runoff from the road and snow melt that happens up on the hills around it and rainwater, and it becomes bigger so by the time you get to the base of it it's a pretty big creek and I love Big Hunting Creek. I used to fish it all the time back when gas was $1.05 a gallon. I worked in a fly shop and was going to school, and I was single. I had plenty of time. I'd go there three, four days a week. That's back in the day. You're going to get cold water higher up, either due to the source of the water being snow melt, cold atmospheric rain and elevation, or you're going to get cold percolating groundwater. So the higher up in elevation, water is going to be colder. You remember... Temperature moderation from a podcast in the back of the year, three or four years ago, called Water is Fly Fishing is Hydrodynamic, the Properties of Water. So you can read about it in that. 
since I'm re-recording this podcast now on my crappy laptop because I've done it five times on my desktop and it always looks perfectly good on audio software, it hasn't come out yet. So I'm doing it on the smaller computer and I don't remember if I talked about this in the main podcast, but the temperature generally drops at a rate of 2.5 degrees per 1,000 feet of increased in elevation on a cloudy, humid day to about 4 degrees decrease in temperature per 1,000 feet of gained elevation on a sunny, dry day. That rate can vary depending on atmospheric conditions. This is the reason why Camp David is up near Big Hunting Creek. It's about mm, three-quarters of a mile higher than D.C., if not a mile above D.C., so a mile above sea level. It's cooler there, so the presidents could go and get away from swampy Washington, D.C., which is why Congress doesn't work this time of year in D.C. No one works in D.C. this time of year. Not that Congress really works anyway. They're not doing anything. But the presidents would escape there, and I think Gerald Ford had it built maybe. But back in the day, it was President Hoover. He had his camp in the Shenandoah Mountains along the Rapidan River because he could get up there away from the stench, smell, and humidity of the city. And also, as you go up in elevation, the temperature does become colder, and that decreases the insect life. So things like mosquitoes and no seams you won't have in higher elevations. So as the temperature decreases as you go up, as you decrease elevation, temperature becomes warmer, you also get an increase in the volume of the water as more feeder streams and snow melt. And uh, there's another name for you know the water that pours into the stream as it goes downhill. Just little feeder streams, you can call it. And fish tend to get larger as you go down in elevation as more food and resources become available. We'll discuss this later on in the podcast. Brook trout just don't see a whole lot of food, so they're going to eat whatever they can anytime they can. Not so much in winter because they're cold-blooded organisms. And I don't think I'm going to talk about that in the podcast, but they are cold-blooded organisms. So in the winter, when the water's really cold, they're probably not going to be biting as much. And we also forgot to mention where the water comes from. If it's a drought year and you're not getting a lot of rainfall or it was a dry winter, the fish are going to be stressed. It's going to be low, warm, deoxygenated water. And that goes into the ethics of fly fishing small streams during these times. It's up to you, but we'll discuss other types of ethics later on. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of the podcast, I just want to say I hope this one actually comes out because I really don't want to record another one. So we're going to talk in this podcast first about the biogeography of Salvolinus fontanalis, the eastern brook trout. We're going to discuss the geographic distribution of the eastern brook trout. And they're called eastern brook trout because that's really where they're from. How to find small streams, techniques and overviews of fly fishing small streams, the best rod you need for fly fishing small streams, the reel that you want to pair with that rod and the line that goes on that reel, the flies, what important flies you need. Are you going to match the hatch? Are you not going to match the hatch? Attractors versus general match the hatch flies. Leaders and tippets, additional gear you might need, the fishing techniques for small streams, environmental issues, and last but not least, hazards, because you may be in the backcountry where cell phones and radio contact is not possible, and you need to be safe out there. So that is my introduction. Jason, let's cut and paste and throw this all together. So let's say you are going to be fishing for brook trout because that is the majority of what lives in these streams where we are fishing. Let's give you a background on brook trout. 
Brook Trout. Their technical, scientific, and Latin name is Salvelinus fontinalis. S-A-L-V-E-L-I-N-U-S. Second word, F-O-N-T-I-N-A-L-I-S. Also known as the Eastern Brook Trout. Salvelinus is the old name for char. Fontinalis means fountain or spring. So it's a type of char that lives in a fountain or spring. And thus we can say they live in spring-fed or fountain-fed waters. Brook trout are members of the Salmonidae family. Remember, family names for animals, the animal kingdom, all end in I-D-A-E. It is a char and is the state fish of the Commonwealth of Virginia. It is not technically a state, though, because we are a commonwealth. Some members who have access to coastal waters will enter the salt water and return and are thus called sea run brookies or salters. And they will go out into the salt water for periods of three months and not to stray too far from their natal streams. Example would be Long Island. The maximum length of a brook trout is recorded at 86 centimeters or 33 inches. Tiny Elvis would say that is huge, man, because the biggest one I've ever caught, a wild one, is maybe 7 to 8 inches. The maximum weight is 9.4 kilograms or 14.5 pounds. If you want to know the huge, mondo huge brook trout story, you're going to have to read the story about Daniel Webster and his gigantic brook trout. There are several stories and and blurbs about it on the internet. I can't remember the exact book that I read the long story, but Daniel Webster once caught a huge one. Remember, he's the guy who sold his soul to the devil. Now, from Wikipedia, the current brook trout world angling record was caught by Dr. W.J. Cook on the Nipigon River in Ontario in July 1915. The fish was 31 inches long, or 79 centimeters, and it weighed 14.5 pounds, or 6.6 kilograms. Now, before I told you the maximum weight was 9.4 kilograms, which was 14.5 pounds, somebody on the internet has confused their conversions. I'm not a math guy. The last math class I took was the history of math, and I had to learn how to count in Sumerian and Guatemalan. So I don't know that conversion, but if you are a math person, you need to go online and correct these people. Now, because at the time of Wayne, it was badly decomposed after 21 days in the bush without refrigeration. So maybe that tells you why the weight changed somewhat. It's the longest standing, standing angling world record. However, a 29-inch, 74-centimeter brook trout caught in October 2006 in Manitoba is not eligible for the record status since it was released alive. Kudos to that person because a fish that big definitely has some quality genes in its system, and we want that to be passed on to the next generation. The oldest living brook trout recorded is 24 years. So now you know about the background of length and weight and girth and etc. Let's talk about physical characteristics. How can you tell a brook trout from other trout? They may be mixed in with bull trout, cutthroat trout, rainbow trout, brown trout. It could be uh, fall fish, dace, suckers, lots of other fish. Now, definitely wild brook trout are prettier than hatchery brook trout. 
This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Physical characteristics and attributions. Brook trout are distinguished by a combination of dark green marbling, which technically is referred to as vermiculations on its back and dorsal fin, and by the red spots with blue halos on its sides or lateral areas. The caudal fin is nearly straight or with a shallow indentation. The colors vary, but generally rather green to brownish on back, marked with paler vermiculations that extend onto the dorsal fin and sometimes the caudal. The sides are lighter than the back with marked numerous pale spots and some red spots, each of the latter surrounded by a blue halo. Anal, pelvic, and pectoral fins have a white leading edge followed by a dark stripe. The rest of the fins are reddish. So a key identifying characteristic would be the vermiculations on the back, the red dots with blue halos, and that white leading edge on those fins. In times of spawning, the lower sides of the fins become bright red. The sea run ones are dark green above with silvery sides, white bellies, and very pale pink spots. They're living in the ocean, not in streams, and thus they have to look different to blend in from the background and make themselves less visible to predators. Brook trout require cool, clear water with a low pH. Let's talk about geographic distributions. Where you live, there might not be brook trout. But if you are, this might sound like where you live. You ready? All right, let's hear. Here we go. North America, most of eastern Canada from Newfoundland to western sides of Hudson Bay. They live south in the Atlantic, Great Lakes, and Mississippi River basins to Minnesota and northern Georgia in the USA. In South America, they live curling Argentina. They were widely introduced in temperate regions of other continents. Several countries report adverse ecological impacts after introduction. You put something that's not supposed to be there, it ends up eating everything that is supposed to be there. So technically, everyone's like, oh, the snakeheads are so invasive. But you know what? You put brook, brown, and rainbow trouts in a body of water, that fish is now invasive. All steelhead in the Great Lakes are technically invasive. They live in clear, cool, well-oxygenated creeks. Write that down. Small to medium rivers and lakes. In its native range, general upstream movements have been observed in early spring, summer, and late fall. Downstream movements in late spring and fall. So if your small stream meets up with a larger body of water, 
if there's a river or lake, you know that they may be going in and out of that lake to feed as the salters do and then coming back up to spawn. Fish that migrate within freshwater only are known as patadromous. Patamos, P-A-T-M-O-S, means river. Dramus means race. Patadromous. Populations of brook trout native to Lake Superior, which run into flowing rivers to spawn, are called coasters. Coasters tend to be larger than most other populations of brook trout, after reaching 2 to 3 kilograms in size. Many coaster populations have been severely damaged by overfishing and habitat alterations, especially by the construction of hydroelectric power dams on their inflowing streams. In Ontario and Michigan, efforts are underway to restore and recover coaster populations. So a coaster is migrating in and out of freshwater, whereas a salter is migrating in and out of saltwater. Those that do migrate in and out of saltwater have to undergo physiological changes because freshwater fish can't go right into salt water. It'll kill them. It sucks. The salt water sucks all of the water out of their cells. So it takes time for them to adjust. We learned about that in the salmon and steelhead podcast. So what does a brook trout eat? Well, that's going to be important to you because your goal after listening to this is to catch them. And in order to catch them, you have to have a fly. And in order to put the fly on, you have to know what the fly represents. And the fly represents something that the trout eats. So pay attention. Brook trout diets, they feed on wide range of organisms, including worms, leeches, crustaceans, insects, specifically chironomids, which are a type of fly, caddisflies, black flies, mayflies, stoneflies, and dragonflies. They will also feed on mollusks, fishes, and amphibians. They have also been known to eat mammals, including voles. They're also known to have vegetative matter in their digestive tracts. They will pretty much eat anything or try anything that floats by. These fish live in altitude. Higher up, there is usually less biodiversity where they live. They live in a small stream. There's not that much that lives in the stream. So they're dependent on a lot of things that blow in. So they have to basically try anything to see if it's edible. There are seeds that blow in, sticks, leaves, branches, other types of organic matter, and they all have to try them because they don't know when their next meal is coming from. That comes into uber importance later on when we talk about fishing for them. So they do eat a variety of food, which is basically anything that lives in and around their streams. Don't neglect terrestrials, grasshoppers, ants, beetles, crickets, etc., Brook trout spawn from August to December. One or more males approaches the female, fertilizes the eggs as the female expresses them, thus it's external fertilization. The eggs are slightly denser than water, thus they're going to sink to the bottom. The female then buries the eggs in a small gravel mound known as a red, R-E-D-D. These fish hatch within 95 to 100 days. Each female deposits 100 to 5,000 eggs. Now, we're going to talk about this later in the section on ethics. The fact that people don't fish brook trout streams when they're spawning, yet people will specifically target largemouth bass on nests, bluegills on nests, migrating salmon. People will target steelhead in the spring when they're spawning. We all have heard that we target 
American shad, hickory shad, gizzard shad, white perch, and snakeheads in the spring when they're spawning. But the only fish that really doesn't get fished upon during its spawn are the brook trout. Now, why is that? Is it just ethics that have been passed down from generation to generation because brook trout were really the first kind of trout fished for with fly rods in America? I don't know. Maybe we're going to have to pursue that later on. Now, people will avoid brown trout on reds. People won't wade streams when certain fish are spawning and the reds are visible. But yet brook trout are always, it's always, I guess the term would be verboten to fish during the fall and to even access or cross a stream fall through winter. We'll talk about that later in another one. All right, let's talk about hybrids. Hybrids are two different organisms that mate and make a sterile or non-viably reproductive offspring. Examples, if you've watched Napoleon Dynamite, gosh, they had ligers, lions, and tigers. If you've been listening to Shark Weeks with the blonde chick from American Pie, she was saying that she thought whale sharks were a hybrid of a whale and a shark uh, coming together. And then I guess she was asked what about tiger sharks, and she didn't have an answer for that. Another thing are zonkeys, zebras and donkeys. There's a lot of hybrids out there. Got to get into Mendelian genetics and all that. But let's talk about hybrid brook trout because this is a small stream podcast with the focus on brookies. Splake, S-P-L-A-K-E. That is a brook trout spawned, mated with a lake trout. Tiger trout. Brook trout spawned with a brown trout. I don't think I've ever come across a splake, but Tom has caught some huge tiger trout when we were fishing Falling Springs once in Pennsylvania. And then it turns out that section was private, but it hadn't been the year before and there were no signs. And we got chased off with a shotgun. One of those great stories. I don't think I told that in the stories podcast. Tom and I were fishing Falling Springs Branch and we were at the the Rosebud Pool. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. But all of a sudden it became private and we got chased off with a guy holding a shotgun. Yep. All right. How to find false streams, small streams, I should say. Topo maps. Do you still have one of those Delorme topographic maps? I've got my Virginia, Colorado, and Pennsylvania ones. Never had a Maryland one because Tom always had that. And I don't really fish Maryland anymore. Go to the bar, get your friends drunk, and have them divulge information. This worked great when I worked at Orvis and Tyson's Corner. We would take old man Bob and the guy... Smoked two packs a day, had already had one lung removed, and drank Budweiser from the moment he stepped into the fly shop. He also would cut his nails in the fly tying section, and it was disgusting. People that cut their nails in public should just have their hands glued together. It's disgusting. But Bob, if you had a couple of Budweisers in him, and we go to Bennigan's, and their pints are bigger there, he would usually divulge a secret spot. And there are places that I have maybe told... One or two people, I know I've given one spot to Davenport. I pointed it out on the way up to Steelhead Fishing last year. But there are streams that, uh, you know, you, you don't mention to other people. And he was one of the guys that if you gave him booze, he would tell you a secret spot. And that spot Tom and I used to go to regularly and absolutely hammer the brookies. When Tom moved away and when our old boss RVO at Orvis moved away, First off, RVO moved. He gave Tom all of his topo maps with all these secret spots highlighted. And then Tom moved to Colorado, and Tom gave me his maps and RVOs. I think I gave away the RVO maps 
I never found them useful, but Tom's Delore maps were all highlighted and marked up. You also have Google Earth now, so you can sit down on your iPad, your iPhone, your computer, whatever technical device, and look up streams. They don't really have good topo features on Google Earth anymore. You used to be able to actually see topography. There are some websites that have topography, and at some point, maybe I'll talk about how to read a topo map, but the closer the lines, the steeper the grade, the more spread apart the lines, the flatter the land. There are also great local books. We've got, uh, in Virginia, we've got fly fishing for trout. I don't remember who wrote the, the book, but it's got an awful cover. We've got the Bo Beasley books in Maryland. You've got the Catch and Release Streams of Maryland by Larry Coburn. So there's definitely local books you can find that have spots in them. And schmooze your fly shops. They're there to give you information. When someone came into Orvis, we always send them to Mossy Creek, two streams in the Shenandoah National Park, like the Rapid Dam and Jeremy's Run, Big Honey Creek, Falling Springs, and like Harper's Ferry on the Potomac. There's those always places you've got the bulletin boards on the back of the fly shops that tell you what's fishing well. But if you schmooze, you buy more stuff from them, maybe bring a six-pack of beer because every fishing guide drinks. Every It's part of the fishing culture. You go to ICAST, IFTD, people are drinking Irish coffees at 7. They may still be drunk from the night before, which actually was some of the people I interviewed. You can definitely bribe somebody maybe to give you some information they're not likely to give other people. And the more you go into fly shop, the more you spend, the more you inquire, I think the more information you're going to get out of people. All right, so that's the background on what is a brook trout, the fish most commonly found in small streams when fly fishing. Let's talk techniques. I already mentioned these fish see very little food, so they are going to try to eat whatever they can. Thus, these fish are very aggressive with other fish in their pools because the dominant fish is going to get there first. That fish has been getting the food first, so it's bigger, it's faster, it's stronger. Survival of the fittest. They are going to outcompete each other for the limited amount of resources in their given location. They're not going to turn down a fly if it's not matched the hatch. So if there are blue quills coming off... Blue, uh, blue wing olives or quill gordons coming off and you throw a beetle. I really doubt that they're going to be like, that's not what's coming off the stream at this moment. I don't think I'm going to go eat that tasty morsel of food. They're going to go eat it. Trust me. We used to tell people that, you know, what's hatching up on the Shenandoah National Park. We'd be like, royal wolves, man. And they'd be like, oh, let me get a dozen royal wolves then. We're like, absolutely. They come out on cloudy days. Yeah, we used to pull all sorts of things. You know, Wooly bugger hatch. Muddler minnow hatch. Dude, the lime wolves are coming off in central Pennsylvania. Man, those were the days. Shenanigans, shenanigans. So these fish, like I said, limited amount of food, very limited resources, survival of the fittest, competition, aggressive. That's why if you watch Nick and Cammy's new video, um, Two Fisted Heart Productions on Vimeo, they will show you brookies jumping out of the stream for little flies because... They have to. They can't risk not passing up a food item. Your rod. Tenkara rods are always going to be great. They can be long and cumbersome if there's a canopy over the stream. The average brook trout rod is going to be six and a half feet to eight feet long. The classic brook trout rod for this area 
And every time I demoed one of the parking lot of the fly shop, it was a purchase was the Orvis super fine seven foot, six inch three weight tippet. I have one. It is a beautiful rod. I've caught big fish on it. I've caught little fish. I've gone after smallies, stripers, largemouth, bluegill. It is a gem of a rod. I don't let clients use it. It's like, it's very precious to me. You don't want slow action rods. Bamboo and fiberglass are perfect. Bamboo and fiberglass are slow rods. They're going to deliver a fly delicately. If you need a fiberglass rod, Orvis is coming out with them. Scott's got them. Reddington's got the butter stick. But if you want a rod on a budget, the fiberglass manifesto, Cameron is selling Eagle Claw featherweights for like 60 bucks, $56. They're lightweight. They are fantastic rods. If you get the latest edition of American Angler, there's a whole interview with Cameron there. Also listen to his podcast on itinerant angler from last year great stuff on on uh, fiberglass about the delicacy the lightness and you catch a two inch brook trout if it farts you're going to feel your rod tremble that's how much uh, i want to say precision in them but the response of them that you feel absolutely everything definitely go for a cork handle with rings to lighten the load you're going to be fishing small streams and small streams it's a culture you you know People fish it differently. You want aesthetics. It's beautiful reels. It's small cork handled bamboo fiberglass rods with pretty wraps on them and maybe a little brook trout logo on it. There's a lot of aesthetics involved. And when you hold that little brook trout in your hand and put the fly rod next to it for comparison, that's when you want that pretty all cork handle with little nickel silver rings on it to slide the feet of your reel into. Now we talked about the reels and also the rods. You're not making 40, 50, 60 foot casts. You're doing like 10, 15, 20. You might just be dapping it or high sticking with only your leader sticking out of the rod. So you don't need long rods. Also, you're going to be walking through brush. They're going to get tangled up. You're going to be hitting trees all over the place. It's just cumbersome. Short rods. It's like golf clubs. I, I don't golf, but I look out here, you know, about 70 feet to my left, there's a golf course. And these yahoos that break my windows and litter everywhere, they got a whole bunch of golf clubs in this like quiver thing that they carry around on their backs or in these funny Flintstones looking cars. They have a different club for every situation. Theoretically, you should have a small stream rod, a medium sized rod, and then like your big salty bass rod. So three, five, and eight is what most people should have in the arsenal. And I know it doesn't, not everyone has the budget to purchase all these rods. So maybe a short eight and a half foot four weight will cover your bass, your bluegills, your brook trout, and your small stream fishing for rainbows and, and browns in central Pennsylvania. Okay, so reels. Brook trout reels, 100% of the reason is to hold your line. So nothing fancy unless you want to go all out. Click and pull is all you need. These fish are not big. They're not pulling line off of your reel. You don't need a large arbor. You don't need fancy drags. You don't have to spend the money on a reel because it's just there to hold your line. You don't have to have anything fancy. The reel should be strong enough, though, that when you fall and you are going to fall, that it won't dent when you fall because you're going to be around rocks. Fancy reels do make for better pictures, so you can um, definitely go that way. Charlie, who fishes with us for stripers at Gravelly Point, 
He's got these Chinese reels and these Chinese bamboo rods that look like the whole outfit cost him three grand. It maybe cost him four hundred and fifty, but his reels are absolutely beautiful. And you put that next to a brook trout picture, and it just it's icing on the cake. So go out, find the right reel for you. I have a Ross Zero reel. It's a click and pull for my one weight rod. I have a Orvis CFO for my three weight. And I'm trying to think if I fish my four weight in the mountain streams, I have a T-Bor light and a dinky old Battenkill, standard Battenkill reel. And Khalil right now has my four weight super fine and my Battenkill reel for going up to Brook Trout this weekend. So we'll have to find out how he does up there. So that's reels, basically. Small, lightweight, just hold your line, make sure you don't fall and break it. So let's talk about the line you're going to put on there. Double tapers, classic. You use the first 30 feet. When that gets all beat up and cut up and crusty, then you take it off and you reverse it. So what was connected to your backing is now your tip section. Again, not long casts. You don't need specially designed high-priced fly lines. You don't need things with super coatings on them, with bubbles on them with textures you just need a basic weight forward fly line again if you're on the budget which i think we should do a podcast on budget fly fishing at some point the fly shop on santa fe avenue discount flying tackle in denver colorado sells factory reject fly lines for nine dollars and fifty cents with three dollars shipping just go get one from them and if you're in that store they've got a crazy amount of fantastic fly tie material Wait for is all you need. Maybe you want to go with a dull color or camo, buckskin, olive, maybe peach. Uh, if you want to be stealthy, you know, go with the, the more dull colors. Let's talk about flies. Now, we could go on for an hour about flies, or I could do what I used to do when I worked in a fly shop. Make it super simple. No need to match the hatch unless you were doing it for the elegance and challenge of purity of the fly fishing these fish, like I said, will eat anything. If black caddis are coming off, you can throw an Adams. They don't care. They might be feeding on something, but they're not going to pass up an opportunity. Your flies should have three main characteristics. Write this down. They should have a bright color so you can see them easily at a distance and in the trees when you hook them on your back cast. Your fly should float well. It should stay on top of the water because brook trout fishing is all about dry flies. You should have a well-exposed hook so that on their first take, they are going to get hooked. I will never use nymphs or streamers on a small mountain brook trout stream. It, to me, is... To me, brook trout fishing is about throwing that puffy dry fly and having it land on the surface gently and having that brook trout shoot up like a torpedo and eat it. I don't want to be out there fishing subsurface. Maybe you'll catch more fish, but hey, I want to be having fun. I'm doing it for the visuals. Like I said, watch Nick and Cammy's video. I already mentioned you lose them in the trees on your back casts. So we'll talk about tippets next. But what flies should you use? Well, of course, the most famous brook trout fly in Virginia is the Mr. Rapidam tied by Harry Murray. Humpies and blacks, reds, yellows will work. Royal Wolves will always work. That's the classic juicy big fly. As Joan Wolf once said, it's like a 
ice cream sundae or strawberry shortcake. It's just big and juicy, and you have to go eat it. Another classic, elk hair caddis, man. Those things are just, they're buoyant. They float. You can put sparkle into them. The clink hammer. Now, when I said I want your hook exposed, think of the clink hammer, how it's going to hang down with a very exposed hook on a certain angle. That way they get hooked on that first go-round. Stimulators, another classic big bushy fly. Foam beetles. I mean, you can't go wrong with a foam beetle. March browns, yellow sallies, quill gordons, black caddis, all the mayflies, stoneflies, caddisflies that come off at different periods throughout the year. Reference a hatch chart if you want to match the hatch. All local small stream books for your area should have a hatch chart. I actually used Harry Murray, Fly Fishing in the Shenandoah National Park book in my entomology class in college. And I think maybe ecology because the hatch charts in it gave you what comes off when. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I was going to come up with something else I wanted to tell you here. Stimulators. Uh, the reason I want you to be floaty is because I don't want it to sink. And if you're going to be doing false casts, make sure you go perpendicular to the water, not parallel with it. You don't want to spook these fish because they're small. They live in very small areas and everything's trying to eat them. Raccoons, birds, otters, hellbenders, you name it. There's something always trying to eat a brook trout. They're very skittish. So don't be... Waving your line over the water. If you got to dry your fly off, give it a good <laughs> blow it in your hands. Use silica. You can have a chamois patch. Just don't cast over the water. So those are my attractors versus match the hatch. And I forgot to put parachute atoms in there. That's a classic one. And then, of course, tenkara flies. Just They're simple. They look like shuttlecocks from badminton. They're going to catch you fish. When I worked in the fly shops, I would have Shenandoah National Park special box. It was like the cheap box you get your vitamins in to travel. I would put in there for fun. I'd put a brassy in there just in case they wanted nymph. A humpy, a royal wolf, a foam beetle, maybe a small foam cricket, a parachute Adams, and an elk caddis. Basically six or seven flies that people would come in they're like... Hey, man, I'm going up to Shenandoah National Park this weekend. What flies do I need? And I'll just pick it up and be like, bazam, shazam, here you go. Don't need to go through them. This is exactly what you need. If you want doubles, just pick them up. They're all a buck 95. Just double them up. They'll click you out at the front at the register. It doesn't have to be technical fly fishing up there. Your flies don't have to be super technical. You don't have to match the hatch. Just go with some standards. Leaders and tippet. Your leader should be six and a half to nine feet long. You don't want it too short that you're going to spook them. You don't want it too long that you're going to be just catching trees and all your back casts. However, you want your leader tippet thick enough to fit through the eye of the hook. So if you're using size 20 elk hair caddis or parachute atoms, make sure that you're not using 3X tippet. It's not going to fit through the eye. Make sure your tippet is not too light that you're going to be losing flies on all of your back casts. 
go as heavy a tippet as you can. I've never found brook trout to be leader shy. They're not going to come up and be like, damn, Smokey, look at that leader. That's a 2x up on that royal wolf. They're not going to pass up food. They're going to go for it. These fish, they're going to eat. So go the longest leader because if you want to dap, you want to get far away from them because your body will spook them. So longer leader if you can, heavy as possible. Additional gear. What else might you need on your mountain brook trout fishing trip? Oh, well, fun Bobby and I went out in college and fished the White Oak Canyon Falls. Fun Bobby now works for the EPA. And he's got a kid also. He doesn't fish as much. I still follow him on Facebook. So Fun Bobby, if you're listening, here's a shout out to you. And I once bumped into Fun Bobby after college. I hadn't seen him for about two or three years. And he was fishing yellow breeches, wet wading barefoot. That's cold water, man. Okay, so sink a six-pack in the water like they did in a river runs through it. I think we did bush light that time we were up there. So the cold mountain stream water is going to cool off your beer for when you're done. However, Fun Bobby did not mark where her six-pack was submerged. And every nook and cranny in that stream looked the same in every rock. So we lost a full six-pack of bush light. A machete is good for bushwhacking through the backwoods. My current... Favorite machete is the Sog Jungle Primitive. I got it for $24 from Smoky Mountain Knife Works. It's 48 on Amazon. It is big. It is sharp. It does the job. A waiting staff, if you are having trouble walking, remember, it's a lot of rocks. You're dropping in elevation, going up and down. You're going to twist an ankle, so maybe a waiting staff is good. It also will help to bushwhack. It will also help to get the spider webs. Now remember, the person that goes first, they're the ones that get the spider webs. So make your significant other or your fishing buddy always go in front of you. Just tell them that the mountain lions always eat the person in the back and they'll go in front. Stream thermometer, if you want to double check the stream temperatures, remember higher elevations, it's colder, the water's gonna be colder. And that is why Camp Hoover is up in the mountains. It was sort of above the mosquitoes at the time. It was five degrees to 10 degrees cooler. So President Hoover had his camp built on the Rapidan River up where it's cooler. And they could get away from all the heat and swampiness that's down in D.C. right now, which is why Congress still takes off all of August. They could take off the rest of the year. It's not like they do anything around here. Pack light, as you're going to be doing a lot of hiking, I used to carry you know the, the Orvis Pro Guide and the Orvis like Tackle Pack Fishing Vest. And, man, you would load that up with cameras and water and split shot and flies and leaders and tippets and indicators oh my goodness thank goodness the sling pack has just been so i would say evolved would be the proper word but it's definitely a much better tool than just taking a hit pack and putting it over your shoulder now tom does this he's got a cheap bike he bought at walmart and he rides it to the stream up or down and just ditches it in the woods and either hikes up or down and gets it and rides home. Water, it's going to be a long day. Uh, I used to carry a little filtration bottle with me so I didn't have to hike in with water. But yeah, you're going to need water. You're going to lose like a quart of water an hour, especially if you're strenuously hiking and out in the sun. Long pants, well, are you going to be waiting or not? If you're not waiting, you could probably wear long pants. If you're in the water, shorts are fine. But we'll get to the reasons why I want you to wear long pants later. You should have a packable raincoat, a nice stream lunch. Of course, I'm going to tell you, nice crusty bread sandwich, charcuterie, maybe some cheese, pickles, olives, etc. 
Hip waders are not my favorite. When you lean down, you're going to fill them with water. It always happens. Polarized glasses are a must because this is fast flowing, clear water. And you want to know if there are fish in there or not. If there's no fish, you might just be wasting your time. Look for them. Look for the movement. Look for the shadows. Fishing techniques. How to fish small streams for brook trout. And I thought about this last night. I'm doing a podcast on do we give fish too much credit? But there's a definite culture in brook trout fishing. I mean, Tom and I would wear full-on camo, almost face paint, and we'd go up there. Hardcore, sneaky approaches. Remember, these fish are scared of everything. If they see you, hear you, anything, they are not going to eat. So you have to be blending in with the surroundings. My suggest is hike in from downstream. If you don't understand that, that is the base of the mountain up. Park at the bottom, hike up. Two things, three things that will make sense. A, you fishing upstream all day. Fish always face upstream unless they're in the pool milling around. So if you come up from behind them, they can't see you. Go back to, is it the Ring of the Rise by Marinero? where it shows the cone of vision. Trout can't see behind them. They can only see in front of them. It'd be like looking through a traffic cone. They can only see a certain area circular around them. So if you come up from behind, from downstream, they can't see you. Plus, at the end of the day, you walk downhill back to your car. So you're slowly walking uphill all day, and then you can walk fast back downstream. As opposed to parking at the top of Shenandoah Mountains up on Skyline Drive, and fishing down all day, which is nice going down, but then you got to hike upstream to your car after you're exhausted. So trust, park at the bottom, hike up. The stream will get smaller as you go up, and the fish may get smaller, but it's better walking out. Remember my old Idaho story? That was the weirdest day. Small fish lower down, bigger fish up. It made no sense, but you know, with a seven foot five weight, I'm catching little five inch cutthroat on little itty bitty size eight Chernobyl ants, and then I start getting into 33-inch bull trout up top where the river's narrower. Made no sense, but it happens. So if the fish are milling around, still approach them stealthily, delicately from behind. Careful with your shadows. If your shadow crosses the stream, the fish are not going to eat. Cast perpendicular to the water, not over it. Lay your line over rocks so your leader only lands in the water. So if I'm downstream, there's a big boulder in front of me, and then a pool I'm going to cast and lay my fly line over this boulder so only my fly line touches the water. Nice, light, delicate, splashless presentation. Work on mending and drifting because your flies are going to hit fast-moving water and get sucked down. These trout, if they're not in the pools, they're going to be in feeding lanes where food is typically going to be going downstream where they can intercept it. So you have to be able to mend to make it look Real enough that they're going to spend the time and effort to go after your food, which is your fly. If you can't overhand cast, if you can't roll cast, you're going to have to bow and arrow it, which is pinch the fly with one hand, let the rod bend, let go of your fly, and it'll shoot it forward. There's no need to double haul up in these streams, so don't worry about not knowing how to single or double haul. Clean your line, make it nice and clean to minimize false casts. Same with your giant flies in the air. I mentioned that before. Cast away from the fish. Basically, don't let the fish see your fly until you present it. Don't spook them with multiple casts is what I'm trying to say. Now, environmental issues that affect brook trout. 
specifically small stream ecosystems, acid rain and pH, coals, when they burn coal and power plants, all sorts of fossil fuels go up. It comes down in rain. It kills everything in the streams. Deforestation. When you cut down the woods, there's mass runoff. The streams also become hotter. Fish can't live. If it's muddy, they can't see where to eat. The mud will also smother eggs. And again, if the water temperature is too high, remember hot water doesn't hold as much oxygen, they cannot survive. Erosion, sedimentation, I already mentioned that. Agricultural runoff. So if you've got farms that are dumping in all sorts of excess nutrients and whatever else um, you've got on top of Skyline Drive, when it snows, they're going to put down salt, sodium, chloride, magnesium chloride. That's going to wash into the streams. Introducing other fish. So if uh, you decide you want to put brown trout in there, it's going to eat all the brook trout. So introducing other fish to the system is going to definitely mess up um, you know, you throw a snakehead up in there. Tactically, the snakeheads, if they're Appahannock, get all the way up into the brook trout streams. They migrate upstream in the springtime. There's no more dam on the Rappahannock. The Potomac River has got the physical barrier of Great Falls. Fish can't get over that. There's no dam or falls anymore on the Rappahannock, so they could theoretically get all the way up from the Tidewater to the Piedmont and the Montane region of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Rock snot or Didymo can clog a stream. That's an Airby magazine article once a month. I don't have to remind you. Culverts. That's Orvis and Trout Unlimited's big thing this year is removing culverts, which are pipes that go through a stream. And basically, there's a drop-off from the culvert. It is like a six-inch is all it takes from the fish not being able to move up and downstream to spawn or just migrate and spread genetic information. So you put a pipe in there, it separates the water from connecting to itself. So now they're trying to remove culverts. Four-wheel drive. Hey, man, if you got Jeeps and ATVs going across the stream, they're going to muddy it up. They're going to put oil in the river. Um, they're also just going to wear down that stream bed, and it's detrimental to the fish. Droughts. Here in Virginia, great summer so far. Like I said, it's like 64 degrees right now in August. The hottest day so far, maybe this year, is 95, and we got about 16 inches of rain in the month of June. Drought is not a big issue this time of year for this year. However, in past years, if you get droughts, brook trout streams will dry up, and that will kill the brook trout. I have no idea how they get reintroduced, whether people are doing it, the biologists, bucket biologists, how they get back into a stream that is dried up. Now, if a stream floods, it may connect to another stream, or uh, I think it's called stream catch when two streams connect through floods or natural disasters, debris flows, earthquakes, and then trout from one stream can then repopulate another stream. But you don't want to fish them during a drought year. It's hot. There's low water. There's no oxygen. You're just going to really stress them. And the new thing in Virginia is they just decided not to pave an access road over the mountains to the Rapidan. So only people with four-wheel drive can get there. So yes, that limits it to people who only have four-wheel drives. You can hike in, you can mountain bike in, you can try getting your two-wheel drive car up there. I've done it in a two-door Honda Accord. It's not easy, but it can be done. But as soon as you put a paved road in, you get to your first hole and you're going to find a Starbucks and you're going to find picnic tables and fire rings and it's all just going to go to doo-doo. You know, like they built the Greenway here in Virginia to connect Fairfax and Loudoun County. 
And 20 years ago, they said, oh, it'll just be a road and nothing will be on either side. It's completely developed now. You build a road, they will come. It's just what we do as humans. Okay. Hazards. This is the last paragraph. Things to look out for when you're in the mountains. Bears. Now, remember, you don't have to outrun a bear. You just have to outrun the person you're with. Don't wear bear bells. That just attracts them is the old story. Rattlesnakes. There used to be a guy in my TU chapter when I was in high school who always said they bite first and then rattle. Poison ivy, noxious plants, including stinging nettle. So if you are going to wet wade and wear shorts, stay in the water. Once you get off onto the sides, you're going to have stinging nettle, which are little hypodermic-like modified leaves that will inject a type of uh, venomous material into you, which is very irritating. There's also going to be thorns and spiders and... Maybe biting ants. So you know, cover yourself up. And just remember, you are in the back country. It's going to be hard for rescue to get to you if you fall, break a leg, twist an ankle, get bitten by something, pass out, etc. So make sure people know where you're going. File a plan with somebody. Cell phones don't always work back there. So just be prepared. Be safe. Have fun. Let me know how you do. That's the end of this podcast. Again, as always, this podcast is free. If you want to help support my small business, please go to ProGuideDirect.com and click on the guide sections or type in my name. I'm under the Northeast Outfitters and Guides. Purchase through my store. If you can't get to a fly shop to buy rods, reels, lines, soft goods like long underwear, uh, balclavas, gloves, hats, buffs, etc., Buy it through the store. I get commissioned. It helps me out. And we are going to have producer Jason polish this up. And Jason, take it away. And Jason, I just saw him on Instagram. He's been doing some small stream fishing up in the mountains. So maybe, Jason, you want to chime in with how you did? That's it for me. That's a good uh, exactly 50 minutes if I keep talking for 10 more seconds. Um, that's it. Jason, take it away. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'm old there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.